0: Uh, we've been going through the the opening chapters of these seven letters to these seven churches in the book of revelation Uh, we've looked at ephesus and smyrna and now we're looking at uh, the letter to the church uh, at pergamum uh, the third one in this series and a a major political cultural religious center um, in this part of the roman empire and as we read through here hopefully we'll see that the the am um, coming to this church out of this letter is that the, the faithfulness that we speak must be matched uh, by the faithfulness that we do. Now let's read now the word of the Lord from the book of revelation, chapter two, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword. I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, when my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, as we look to the words that you declared to John to write down for the church in Pergamum and for your people for the last 2,000 years. And Lord, we pray as you proclaim that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would be working through our hearts to grant us understanding what it is that you recognize in the life of your people and how you have provided for us, and that we might be those who conquer and endure through you, that we would share the presence that we have here this morning with you in eternity forevermore. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make. I have reclined on Satan's throne. And I have quenched my thirst from the serpent's fountain. And that's an intentionally inflammatory statement here at the beginning of the sermon uh, to illustrate something about these letters. They're real. This Satan's throne in Pergamum's, the temple of Zeus there. In fact, if you visit the city of Berlin and go to the Pergamum Museum there, you too can sit on its steps and climb up to the altar and walk around the portions of the ruins that have been carted off. Uh, there's a a healing temple. We'd probably call it a spa today to the the god Asclepius. Um, It's an interesting one. It has a freshwater fountain there that folks no doubt went there in order to, to heal and relax and refresh themselves. The weird part of a spa visit there was the fact that when you spent the night, they released snakes into the sleeping area to crawl over you and bring that God's healing powers. Don't laugh at it too much. Uh, Asclepius, his rod is actually what's on most Caduceus and medical symbols today, that rod with a snake wrapped around it. So um, there's still some relevance there, These letters aren't just sort of symbolic and over-the-top and metaphorical, they're very much intended to be practical. There's symbolism, no doubt, but when we hear things like Satan's throne and a place where he dwells, this isn't supposed to be something out of an Indiana Jones or National Treasure episode. It's something that the original audience and us as those that have Bible and history at our hands would be able to understand. That's exactly what happens in chapter one and verse 20. We go through this series of symbols. We're not sure what they are. And sort of like the parable of the sower, the declaration in verse 20 tells us, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, Here's the answer. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's an expectation of of understanding here, just like an expectation that the folks in Pergamum would know what the Lord's talking about here with Satan's throne. And that the purpose of these letters aren't just edification and knowing more stuff about the Lord's will, but highly, highly practical. As we were told in verse three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Reading, being blessed, keeping these words. The letters to each of these cities come with blessings and curses, with instructions and insight that were relevant and applicable to their immediate situation 2,000 years ago but also like all of God's word to us today. It's a message for them that the faithfulness that we speak must be matched by the faithfulness that we do. Now the city of Pergamum, it's probably not one that most of us are familiar with. It's not a modern day mega city. It's not one that Paul happened to write a letter to either but it's a rather important city in this time and age. It's probably the biggest rival to Ephesus in terms of its size and importance here in these seven churches in the book of Revelation. It had the the greatest library rivaling the legendary library in Alexandria. If you've ever heard of the word parchment, that's a rather poorly translated process that comes basically from the name of the city, Pergamum talking about how rather than using papyrus, they developed using parchment animal skins to record books. Their library popularized the, the Codex, which basically is what you have in front of you, is the modern book form. This was a, a city steeped in culture and skill and in learning. It had been independent on its own, and yet in the time that John's writing had become a major administrative center for the Roman Empire. It was a major headquarters for the worship of Caesar, worship of Zeus with this massive temple on its side, as well as the variety of other gods that you would find in Greece and in Rome. For Christians living in the city of Pergamum in the very heart of Roman Imperial worship, a history of, of proud pagan worship and practice, a pluralistic government, and everything that comes with it. You could probably say in some sense that this is John writing a letter to folks living in Satan's hometown, as it were in that day and age. It was a place that everywhere that they turned, they would have found things opposed to Christ and his message. Well, what's the church in Pergamum been doing well? That's where we find them. And Christ declares, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, even in in spite of that fact, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. There's been faithful endurance. They've spoken what they worship, and that they follow the Lord. They've faithfully endured through a round of explicit, open, hostile opposition from the authorities in the city. Faithfulness unto death. If you look up one letter, that was a warning that was going to come to the churches and probably the leaders in Smyrna. That reality has already come, not to this small, semi-backwater town, but in the heart of the Roman administration in the religious center of, center of Pergamum, it's already arrived. There's overt hostility. Leaders are being carted off, jailed, and killed as an example of rebellion against Caesar himself. It's a reminder to them and an example to us to stand strong in witness for Christ. We don't necessarily live in a day and an age where that's all that difficult. If you filled out a census in 2020, you probably didn't hesitate when you marked down on the religion section, Christian. You might have a bumper sticker that mentions Christ, the fish or something along those lines. You you may add on your Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever profile that you're a member of Forest Gate or a believer. But that's in our culture today where that seems to be easy. And yet if we're honest, we find ourselves in conversations at times where bringing up the fact that we're a Christian may be something awkward that we perhaps avoid but it's a reminder to us that the gospel is the only power unto salvation. As Christ's disciples declare in the gospels, they say, where else can we go to find the words of life? Romans 1 reminds us that we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the only power of salvation a truth that these believers in Pergamum knew and were willing to go even to their graves to remain faithful to the Lord. But that's not where the leather ends. It's it's the easy introduction. It's the I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? Well, Christ's example seems to be providing the good news first. So what's troubling? Uh, What's the challenge then within, not from without, but from within the church in Pergamum? Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And in verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. (laughs) The problem that's troubling The church in Pergamum is compromise in their Christian living and the way that they live out their lives. That the faithfulness to the Lord and the faith that they speak is not matching faithfulness in practice. It doesn't line up with what they do. You might say they're hypocrites in that regard. There's an outward faithfulness. They're, They're willing in the The opposition of the Roman Empire, the, the various priests and temples and economic guilds in the city to openly declare that they're Christians in some fashion. But that doesn't seem to be matched by walking faithfully with the Lord. They're not denying him. But when the rubber meets the road, what they're doing doesn't reflect the instruction of Christ himself. They're not, as the word Christian means, little Christs. Now, the reality is Ephesus was dealing with and resisting false teaching. So in some sense here, Pergamum's a a little mixture of what we've already encountered. They've endured persecution, as is coming in Smyrna. But when that false teaching that the letter warns is coming to the city of Ephesus, Pergamum hears it, accepts it and applies it it should be a reminder and a warning to us that what we take in what we teach what we accept eventually will have consequences as it radiates out in our actions and in our lives we can't just simply take everything in uncritically we are what we worship and What we become produces the fruit of our actions in our lives. Pergamum has been willing to take on, within its own midst, various false teachings that perhaps made it easier to be a Christian without denying the name in the city of Pergamum. We're given these two schools, these two categories, Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Balaam's the easy one. The Book of Numbers, chapter 25 and 31. This non-Israelite who seems to have a vision, an angel of the Lord comes to him. The Lord works and speaks to him as Balak, a foreign king and general here is trying to attack and defeat the people of Israel. And Balaam comes and he helps lead Israel into idolatry, into worshiping. False God, someone other than the Lord of the Bible. And beyond that, he also leads them into sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans, we know a lot less about them than we do, but they seem to teach that it was okay for the Christian life to adapt and bring on themselves Pergamum's temple practices of going in, latest temple feast and sitting down and participating in that worship and sacrifice, what would have been essentially a a glorious and grand free public barbecue in many instances in a world where that wasn't the common thing. And also where temple prostitution would have been a, a common practice of going in and seeking a God's favor for your work for your marriage, for your children. A proclamation that it's fine. You can still be a Christian and do the temple stuff. Still be relevant and participate in the things that your Pergamum neighbors are doing. You can be authentic to yourself and your desires and what it means to, to carry the proud badge of being a member and a resident of the city of Pergamum, this great and shining symbol of learning and independence and authority in the world around them. And if we're honest, this is a challenge that church history declares pretty openly, has plagued us as the Lord's people from Genesis all the way through the last 2,000 years, and it seems through the book of Revelation as well. Compromise in Christian living for those who claim to belong to Christ. We live in an easy world to say that we're Christians and then figure out how to redefine what it means to live as those who walk in the footsteps of Christ. We speak one thing and then find ways of doing another. We we don't have thrones of Satan in most of our communities these days. Giant temples where sacrifices are being offered. But I mean, where do we put our hope and our trust and our desires when things are going wrong or we want particular outcomes? What controls how our week and our day goes? Is it? Results of the Broncos game? What flag do you have flying outside of your house? Broncos, Avalanche, Rockies? One of my old neighbors, it was basically every day there was a new flag outside the front of their house because whatever college team or pro sports team was playing, they just put the next one up. Is it money? You pay attention to where the stock market's going where your bank account is. is is that where your hope and security is or maybe it's your feelings we live in a, an emotive culture these days let our feelings define us drive us guide us sexual immorality we live in a world and a culture where sex outside of the marriage covenant with a husband and a wife is Pretty typical, pornography is commonplace and it's a culture that outside of the church and even in parts of the church, sees humanity largely as a a sexual being. And those other temptations to conform to the culture, our language, coarse joking, getting things off of our chests, telling it like it is, gossiping, Some of those small sins we don't mind sweeping under the rug. How we define love. Is it a feeling or is it actually supreme and absolute covenant loyalty, as the Bible seems to speak of it? We're tempted to act functionally as atheists. We walk out the church door and we live our lives in a way that expects the world to to live and to act on the rules of materialism and that I actually have control over what's going to happen in my day and week and month and year and career. I mean, what is the definition of the whole section of the self-help movement in the bookstore? That's probably a bad illustration. On Amazon. It's not in a bookstore anymore. It's the idea that I can do certain things and control the world around me. I'm the captain of my own ship, the king of my own castle. And we also live in a culture and a world where rebuking and correcting is not something that's particularly lauded and approved. we live in a world where you let bygones be bygones, you tolerate things and allow them to go on. The challenge is that when we're starting to talk about teaching and practices within the church, John writes to the, the folks in this region in another letter of his in 2 John in verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, talking about the, the gospel, the true gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greetings. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. There's an accountability on our end. That's a warning to myself and the other elders here. That if we allow things like Balaam and the Nicolaitans to enter into the life of the church, and we don't call them out, we're participating in those things. And the reality is the temptation to just change things slightly without losing the the kernel of the gospel, perhaps, of what it is. To add Father Christmas and Santa Claus and everything else to the worship of Christ has defined church history. It's what's going to come in the next century after these letters are written. Guys with famous names, Marcion, the Gnostics, ended up with centuries of adapting pagan practices in northern Europe. Just look up what most of the days of the week mean that we've adopted into our lives. They're not usually Christians, it's Odin, Thor's dad. That's Wednesday, by the way. Our calendar is mostly defined by the Romans and their various imperial cults. Yeah, June, July, August, that's Caesar Augustus. That's his family line referenced as well the deified caesar it's not really something missing in the the modern american church either emergent christianity emotional mysticism popularity of books like the shack and jesus calling there's been a temptation to to sit easy with the world around us and act like them but in a slightly different better improved christian way so that we can still go along to get along while also hoping that we would be with Christ. But here's the problem. A disciple is one who imitates and follows Jesus. One of the weird vocabulary things in scripture, if you've got a concordance, is you look up the word disciple, and it happens a lot in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the word hardly gets used. You don't find the word disciple all that often in the letters of the New Testament. What you hear is the word imitate. So do we imitate Christ in what we do as well as in what we say? Because if the faithfulness we speak does not match what we do, we've got a warning to us. Christ is going to come. He's not just going to let his bride, his church, be picked on by the world. It's the holiday season. You've probably seen enough news stories about scams over the phone, over email. If you've got a a relative, if you've got a a grandmother who's being hit up for $10,000 from her long lost cousin who just happens to be a royal in Africa or Asia or whatever it is, you you don't just sort of let that happen. You, You step in and intervene. That's Christ's declaration here. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them the members of the church in Pergamum with the double-edged sword of my mouth. And if we find that the faithfulness that we speak doesn't match the faithfulness that we do, what do we do then? Verse 16, it's pretty easy. Therefore, repent. Repent of the compromise in our Christian living. Reject it. Remove the sinful teaching, the sinful acting, and behavior within our lives, and turn towards imitating Christ. Read, study, worship, so that we can think the Lord's thoughts after him. We put on the new creation in Christ and live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called in the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us and works in and through us. Because look, we're not being offered a 10 step plan to a better life, to have your best life now. No, what we're being offered to those who faithfully overcome, who conquer through the cross, is something far more than that. The heavenly manna of eating, the wedding supper of the lamb, in the glory and hope of the eternity of the resurrection. A, a white stone, a token of approval, an entrance into that glory and eternity of the Lord's presence. The new name of Christ, the same words as Revelation 19 and Luke chapter 10. An understanding of who the Lord truly is that's only something that believers grasp. And you know, the faithfulness that we speak must be matched by the faithfulness that we do. Faithful endurance and conquering in the name of Christ can't coexist with compromise in Christian living. So let's take the example from Pergamon. Endure faithfully through trials and suffering and keep the name of Christ on our lips. But let's also walk in his footsteps in order that we may share in all the good Christ has promised for his people and not the judgment in which he stands against the world. Because the reality is he has chosen us. He's made us the children of God. So let us then talk and walk as those who belong to a heavenly kingdom, coming as the book ends, on the clouds of glory from heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can enter into a new year like the world with fireworks and drinking and celebrations and parties and resolutions to change how we live. Lord, or we can enter into what comes next. As your people, those who profess that we belong to you, repent of our sins and seek to imitate you in all that we think and say and do. Lord, we give you thanks that you've not left us powerless. You haven't just given us a good example. That you've given us the strength of God himself, his Holy Spirit, living and dwelling within us something amazing enough that's better than having Jesus in our midst. Lord, we would ask that you would give us ears to hear, a will and a desire to repent, the strength through you to conquer in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.